You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see everyone, for us to be together this morning and to open God's Word together. Let me encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to our text, which will be in during the time that we have this morning in Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Amos chapter 7 verses 10 through 17. I do want to begin this morning and give thanks to all of those who made our men's summit this weekend possible and such a great success. We had so many people involved in providing the food and providing the teaching, both those from our church and from Grace Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Our friends who were here once again, fantastic partners as they've been for the last nine years almost that our church has been in existence. And so I just want to thank uh, everyone who made that possible, taking care of children, providing food, and all of the rest. It was an important time for the men of our church so that we can continue to maintain strength, to lead well in our families, in our workplace, in our community, especially in our church. It's an important time. We had a great time during this men's summit focusing on what our pastors had discussed for a while that we felt was, was a, good, a good point of contact for our men, that we would grow in two things, charity and patience. We thought together and prayed about this and looked over the last year and a half to think about what, what has the last year and a half of troubles, they have been many, What have they brought to the surface of our lives and shown a real need for? What have we struggled with as believers in this current moment in our culture? And so we wanted to spend the weekend thinking, praying, learning, fellowshipping around charity and patience. How can we show charity and patience to those especially with whom we disagree or those with whom we have conflict And so our weekend really began with this important point that I took away, which was the reminder that as Christians, and in particular as Christian men, we are living under the name of Christ. Pastor Ricky from Grace Baptist Church, who taught that first session on Friday night, made a very impactful point to all of us to remember our name Many of us have heard that before. Growing up, we may have a parent or grandparent or someone who gave us that advice. When you're out there at school or in the world or wherever you go, remember your name. Remember that you are representing someone and something bigger than yourself. And in our case, we are representing Christ. And then we continued in the weekend thinking about how we could practically engage with people, not for the purpose of simply debate when there are disagreements and conflicts, but that we would engage with people in disagreement for the purpose of ministry to them, that we would be able to enter their world and understand their need and bring them Christ and his answers. And then we closed last night with a very helpful teaching from Pastor Isaac, and in particular where we thought about the incredible impact that this kind of living, this kind of thinking can have over the course of generations as we are drawing from all that we have gained that God has invested in us as believers throughout our lives, and then the, the, long, the, the long race ahead that we can continue impacting others. And so it was just a very helpful time. This really fits in well with our text for this morning. Because we are reminded in this text 
that we are called as God's people to be ambassadors, to be those who are speaking on his behalf. We are, we are announcing this incredible good news that we call the gospel. And so we want to learn this morning from Amos in Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, from Amos who was a prophet. And we want to think in terms of our own role as a church and as believers, as ambassadors of Christ this morning, of how can we be faithful ambassadors? How can we be faithful prophets? Now, that's a word that we don't use very much in this context because it can be a little bit confusing the way that the word prophet uh, is more widely used, and, and it can be confusing exactly what we mean. But as we think about it this morning, we're thinking about how God is using us as ambassadors for Christ. As we look at what Amos was doing and dealing with at this time in the nation of Israel. You'll remember from past weeks that throughout the book of Amos, God has been delivering these judgments, these announcements of judgment coming upon the people of God because of the way that they had come to, to live and think in the world, the way that they had in many ways turned away from the covenant God and had chased after their own desires and lived life in their own ways. And so repeatedly, Amos the prophet is bringing bad news to them. And so this morning, we want to see how we can identify with what Amos was doing and that we can gain courage as ambassadors for Christ. And we're going to do that by noticing three truths about prophets that we may be able to take into our own lives as we see ways that we can make the most of the gospel. And here's the first truth. The first truth as we see Amos this morning is that prophets, or as we would think of ourselves as ambassadors for Christ, in this fallen world, will inevitably face rejection. Amos faced rejection at almost every turn in his story because he was repeatedly having to bring bad news. It was not welcomed news that judgment was coming. And he gives us an example of someone else who has faced the rejection of the world in service to God as his mouthpiece. We pick up in verse 10 and we see someone named Amaziah who was the priest at Bethel. Now, in the very last text from last week, it ended with this announcement of judgment upon the sanctuaries in particular because the worship of the people of Israel had become perverted and even the, the shrines, the altars, the sanctuaries, they had all been sort of undone from their ultimate godly purpose. And therefore, this announcement comes to those who are leading there among Amaziah, who was most likely something like the high priest in this place called Bethel. Well, the high priest, when he hears this bad news about judgment coming, he took serious offense. And it's understandable why he would take offense. These are serious words undercutting everything that he has been doing in the way that the nation of Israel is living at this time. But what happens here is that Amaziah then rejects the announcement of Amos, and he does it by conspiring against him. Listen to what it says in verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all of his words." This priest, when he hears the bad news coming from the prophet of God, he creates a conspiracy against the prophet 
by going to King Jeroboam of Israel and telling him what's going on, but he doesn't tell him the whole truth. Notice the way that Amaziah describes what is happening. He leaves someone clearly out of the picture. That someone is God. When he goes to the king and he explains what Amos has been doing and he, and he, he warns him about the way that Amos is bringing these, these heavy and dark words against the land or against the people such that they can't bear any more to hear from this guy. We can't listen to what he says anymore. He frames everything out as though Amos is the one who is conspiring. Amaziah has created a kind of conspiracy theory that frames Amos as a lone man, only speaking on human terms, only giving the announcement as perhaps some kind of political figure, leaving God completely out of the picture, not showing that Amos is coming, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, and he is bringing these incredible words of warning that we might heed them and we might be saved and we might escape from the coming judgment of God. But rather what he's done is he has reframed the whole story. He goes on and he says in verse 11, for this is what Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amos, Amaziah said to Amos, go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, the southern nation, and eat bread there and do your prophesying there. He says, eat bread there. This is a way of talking about someone's profession. So you get another picture of the way Amaziah is viewing Amos in his work. He's saying, Amaziah is just a hired hand. He's only doing these things so that he can get his bread, so that he can make his money. Therefore, Amos, why don't you go somewhere else with this bad news, with this hard truth? Why don't you go south and make your money there? Verse 13, but do not prophesy at Bethel any longer, for it is a sanctuary, notice again who's left out of the picture, of the king and a royal residence. To him, it's not a sanctuary of the true God. It's a sanctuary of the king. And so he commands Amos, the prophet, to, to flee away. He does it in this emphatic way. Look at how he uses the words and doubles them up. Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. He wants him desperately to, to get out of town with this hard news. It is a picture of clear rejection. It's a denial, and it's a denial of the worst kind. Because in reality, what was Amos doing? He was doing the thing that all prophets do, that all ambassadors do, who are true to their word and true to their calling. He was coming with the very words of God. He's not coming with the words of men. He's not made this up. He's an instrument in the hands of a judge. And as we know from the gospel, he's an instrument in the hands of a redeemer. And therefore, this rejection is of the highest sort. You may have seen these commercials recently, especially around Ohio. And there is a series of brilliant marketing uh, campaign against the opioid crisis that's raging in our state and other places. And this marketing campaign frames out a place in Ohio, a city called, called Denial. 
And as it frames out the story or a family living in denial, you see this idyllic neighborhood where everything is in its proper place. The sun is always shining. Everyone is happy and calm. And as they interview the parents and others around town, they all say, oh, that kind of thing could never happen here. Denial, Ohio, is a wonderful place to live. Our children would never give in to opioid addiction. They would never be a part of something like that. If they were offered something, they would let us know because this is what it's like in denial. It's a great picture as I've seen that over and over again and thought about my own life and thought about for all of us, what is the, the allure of denial? The allure of rejecting what is true and real that we would rather push aside the hard news, that we would push aside the hard truth rather than see it face to face. And that is one of the most devastating things that we can do in our lives. Why is that? It's because we know as Christians that on the backside of every bit of bad news from God's law, God's word, God's world, is a God who brings good news. He brings good news that cannot be understood unless we embrace the bad news. If we don't know what the problem is, how can we know the solution that God has provided? And therefore, we're reminded again and again in the scriptures to be people who are willing to listen to the hard news. Be willing to receive the hard truth so that we then also can turn to our God who is enormous and glorious in grace and mercy. It's a serious thing to reject the word of God. Though it may feel better for a moment, in the end, it leads to ultimate destruction. That means that we need to reframe the way that we see our world. The people who live in Denial, Ohio, are the epitome of optimists. They see everything as bright and wonderful as it could possibly be, even to the neglect of the truth. Some of us in here are optimists. We always see the glass full, if not half full. But there are others of us in here who are quite the opposite. We're pessimists. We always see the glass empty and emptying. We have a hard time seeing, seeing God's hand in hard news or, or seeing God's hand in, in hard situations in the world. But friends, I'm going to tell you that I think the Bible charts a better course down the middle of the two. And it's something that I would call hope-filled realism. That's what the people in the nation of Israel at this time and the people of God at all times are in desperate need of. It's something that God enables us to have because of his control in the world and in particular because of his covenant promises to us. The same covenant promises that these people were enjoying or had received. These promises of his ultimate favor and care, that he would always be gracious and merciful to us, that he would be our redeemer to the very end. It charts a course right down the middle between blind optimism and blind pessimism, hope-filled realism is something entirely different. It allows us to look at the world for what it really is, that we can be what only Christians can be, truly honest about the problems in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own church, 
in our own world. And yet, not by rejecting and denying and pretending that everything will be okay, and not by falling into despair because we expect that everything will not be okay, but because we know a God who gives us hope. And therefore, we can walk forward in the face of these hard truths, hard realities, big problems with ultimate, ultimate hope. This is what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. This is what it means to be a kind of prophet. We can even face rejection from the world with joy if we walk that middle path. This has been the way of God's people when they've lived faithfully before him. We hear it all over the pages of scripture. It's a wonder that we forget it so easily. Listen to this reminder from 1 Peter chapter 4. This is verses 12 through 14. Listen carefully and hear the reality of rejection, of hard times and hard truth, and the hope that Christ gives. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now, those are two things that we don't often think of as going together, do we? Sufferings and rejoicing. I thought suffering was only for weeping and crying. Well, the Bible tells me that it's also for rejoicing, but it only happens in Christ because listen to where it comes from. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted, if you are rejected, if you are denied, if you are mistreated for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That word blessed means happy. It means exceedingly glad. You are exceedingly glad if you are insulted for the name of Christ because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. That is a beautiful picture of the way God's path cuts right down the middle in this world and gives us hope and joy and gladness even in the rejection by the world. I believe that Amos had something like this. I believe it's what enabled Amos to continue faithfully, humbly exercising the role that he had been given. He was called, and I believe that he did in many ways, humble himself. Under the mighty hand of God, when rejection and even hard news came back to him. And therefore, as ambassadors of Christ, we want to do the same thing. We can prepare ourselves now to receive rejection and to do it with gladness that we would continue to move forward in true, true blessing, true rejoicing, true happiness. But in order for us to face rejection with joy and gladness, we need something. We actually need the same thing that we considered last Sunday, and we see that next, that prophets, ambassadors of Christ, Amos needed humility. Is there anything, I ask you, more humbling than speaking for God? Is there anything 
more dangerous than speaking for God. On both sides, it requires of us, it works in us, a special kind of humility. That's ultimately what prophecy is. That's what being an ambassador of Christ is. That's what being a Christian in this world is. I'm doing a a kind of prophecy right now. I am speaking to you and to myself the word of God. We're bringing from the word of God the message of God. Clearly, verse by verse, looking at what he intended to say to the people of this time and then thinking about how it impacts our lives even today. Amos was doing a very similar thing, but in a, in a different way. He was receiving the word of God and then announcing it to the people. We're doing it through his word. But either way, no matter what kind, one thing is of utmost importance, and that is this kind of humility that we see here. And we remember, like we did last Sunday, that this kind of humility, biblical humility, it's not the humility that we hear uh, exalted in the world. That's a different kind of humility. That's a a low-bar humility. That's, That's the kind of humility that means you have to say the right words and walk the right way and have the right look on your face. And then when people see you, they will think of you as humble. It means that you need to learn to bite your tongue a little every now and then, and that's what it means to be humble. But that's not what the Bible means, and that's certainly not what Amos shows in this text as he puts on display the incredible humility that enables us as well to be ambassadors of Christ. Notice what happens in verses 14 and 15. Amos talks about himself, but he does so in a shocking way striking way in this situation. He is being rejected outright. He's coming to bring the most ultimate and important message of the day to these people. And then he's sent away. Go somewhere else. Take your professional prophecy and make your money somewhere else. Something entirely different than what he actually was doing. And look at how he responds. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, or perhaps more specifically, a professional prophet. Of course he's a prophet. He's announcing God's word. He is the prophet Amos. But he says, I am not a prophet the way you say, nor am I the son of a prophet. For I am, and here comes the incredible humility of Amos. I am a herdsman. I am a grower of sycamore figs. Sycamore figs were known to grow in the very lowest of the valleys. He is casting himself in the, in the most humble terms before this, this, this high and exalted religious leader and king. I am just a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. I am nothing significant. I'm not high and exalted. I'm not a professional elite. And then he shows where his real humility comes from by talking about his understanding of his call. Look at verse 15. He knows his identity. He knows where he's come from. He's come from the field. He's come from the valley, but he's come for one reason. The Lord. The Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. 
Notice the way that he repeats the key words to make the point. And then he gives the antithesis of that by talking about Lord. Again, in your copy of God's word like mine, L-O-R-D is capitalized to remind you that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Notice what he says again. I am not a prophet. I am not the son of a prophet. I am a herdsman. And then the humble focus on God. He even uses the Lord basically three times. But Yahweh took me from following the flock. And Yahweh said to me, go prophesy to Yahweh's people, Israel. This kind of ministry, this kind of presence in the world requires ultimate humility. It is determining to see yourself inside the kingdom of God, not inside the kingdom of self. This is what's so beautiful about the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is so heart satisfying. It is so glad making. It is so life fulfilling that we no longer have to grasp after our own accolades. We no longer have to exalt ourselves as the people who will set everyone else straight or, or we're going to be the ones who are going to lead off into the future and we're the ones that everyone should be bowing before or answering to or listening to or obeying. But rather the gospel frees us to lose ourselves, to lose ourselves in his kingdom and in his reign, giving almost no thought to ourselves, we can become servants. And by being servants in that way, we can be made glad. But we all know as we hear that, I think you do as I do, that's a miraculous work for that to be done in a heart like mine. You see, by God's doing, and a little bit by my doing, you cannot see my heart. You don't know what I'm really like. I may try to show you certain things that I want you to see. I may try to hide other things that I don't want you to see. But the reality is that my heart, like yours, all of us, we are in desperate need of God's gracious work to make us like this. Because this is not natural. This is not normal. This is supernatural. This only comes by knowing Christ, by, by being willing because of his work in us to look fully in the face of his word and to see him and to allow him to show us, show us our desperate need for change. And as he does that, he works in us this humility question for the men, mostly the married men. Other men may identify. You can do the same thing at the mall sometime and see what the results is like. Men, have you ever looked into your wife's makeup mirror? I didn't realize until I spun it around one day, just mindlessly walking around the house, I guess, that it magnifies your face. I looked in that mirror and I thought to myself, why would anyone want to do that? 
I could see, I could see every pore. I could see every blackhead. I could see every hair. It magnified every blemish on my face. But we do want to do that, don't we? As Christians, this is what God so graciously gives to us. Because God doesn't live in denial, Ohio. God doesn't cover up our blemishes so that we cannot see them. In fact, he puts them on display for us. His word is a makeup mirror. It is showing every blemish, every pore, every stray hair. And all the while, he is saying over your shoulder, I love you. I will be gracious to you. I will keep you. I will change you. I will make you beautiful. I will humble you so that you can be glad in me. That is how Amos got to this point. He got to this point because God had been at work in him. And you notice what he does. He takes the lowest path of significance. In 2003, a popular book called The Search for Significance came out, and it drew attention to what is in the heart of every human being, a search for significance. It is what every person by default mode in sin does every single day. Try to find significance. Try to be a significant person in the world. Find your place. Carve out your niche. Be someone. Do something. But here we have something far, far more beautiful. It is the ability for us to take the the lowest level of significance so that we could magnify and maximize the ultimate significance of God. Take some time this week. Look through your Bible. Find key figures, key examples given to us who do this very thing. You will find that the most godly people in the Bible and in the world do this very thing. They lose themselves. They're not trying to find themselves. They're trying to lose themselves in Christ, who is all. One of the prime examples that may come to your mind as it does for me, because it's so relevant to us, there seems to be a little less historical distance as we, as, as we look at the Apostle Paul and we see the way he viewed and lived his life, many parallels to what, what even our world is like today. Listen to this example. It's beautiful. It's an example given to us that we would follow it. In Philippians chapter 3, you heard this earlier, starting in verse 4. Listen to Paul. He starts off with something really interesting. He starts to name off his, his resume, his CV, all of his accolades and accomplishments, all of his education and his elite status in the day. And he starts to say, if anyone has confidence in themselves, if anyone should esteem themselves, it's me because I am this and this and that and that and this. But then you see it was all a trick. It was all a trap to lure you in because your heart says, yes, yes, that's what I want to be. And then suddenly he takes all of the accolades and he throws them in the trash. Listen to it. If anyone else thinks he's confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day, according to the law, as a Jew, 
of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin, which, would, which did not revolt, a Hebrew of Hebrews, translate that valedictorian of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, a law keeper at every turn, intimately acquainted with the law. As to zeal, verse 6, no one more zealous. I was a persecutor of the church, putting in prison and putting to death. As to the righteousness, which could possibly be found in the law by rule keeping, blameless. There are people who would be hearing this then, people who would be hearing this today, whose hearts would start to sing and rise. Yes, yes. I want to be valedictorian. I want to be the president. And then he hits you with verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. It's financial ledger language. It's saying of all of these prophets that I have written down in the ledger of all of these ways that I have excelled and I have gained value in the world. I took my ledger pen and I crossed them out. I moved them over into liabilities and expenses and I slashed them. More than that, he goes on in verse eight, not just those things. I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have actually suffered the loss of all things. He's not a talker. And I count them mere rubbish, trash, dung, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if somehow I might attain to the re resurrection from the dead. That is a striking portrait of humility. We need more of this. What happens when you catch on to this kind of humility as God is working it in you? What are the effects? What are the benefits of this kind of humility? Why is it so important for us to have this in order to be ambassadors of Christ, in order to be faithful Christians in the world and in our church? Let me give you just five. Five effects of this kind of humility as it works in us. Here's first. It makes us Godward facing. You see the difference throughout this text this morning and throughout the Bible, anytime we lose the humility that places us in subjection to Christ, in service to others, immediately turns our attention away from God to something or someone else. We look out to the horizon of the world and what we could be, how we could have our name in lights. But this kind of humility, it always pulls us back again 
to where the true light is found, to where true joy is found, where you really want to be known, and that is by Christ. It makes us Godward facing. It makes us dependent upon him. We know that we don't have it in ourselves to do what is needed in life. I cannot make it in this life. I cannot do this world. So we're Godward facing. Number two, it makes us secure. So much of that kind of ambition in the world is driven by a kind of insecurity that feels like my world is going to spin out of control if I don't. If I don't reach my goal, if I don't step up, if I don't put my foot down, if I don't speak this word, then everything's going to get away from me. But in Christ, we have no concern for that, do we? Because nothing is going to get away from him. He has me. He has you. He has everything, the whole world in his hands. And therefore, we are loved and cared for in his will, whatever happens around us. It makes us secure. Now, here's one that you might find interesting as I do. Being Godward facing and being secure makes us kind. Christians ought to be the kindest people on the face of the earth. Because when seeing the world rightly, we have nothing to fear. We have no one to fight. Christ is doing all and we are with him. Therefore, as ambassadors, we don't need to push our agenda. What can we do? Rest in Christ. Let the kindness that he has worked in us show the world that this God is the God who's in control. This is the God who makes me secure. This is the God who takes away my fears. What could man do to me? Nothing. And in that kindness, number four, this humility is what makes us courageous. And you might have a hard time with that. Sometimes I don't think of humility and courage as going together. I think of humble people uh, because I'm not seeing it rightly. I think of them as being maybe a little weak or a little quiet or you know, what are they ever going to do? They're too humble. They're too timid to get anything done. But it's quite the opposite because God dependence and security resting in the kindness of our God and showing that kindness to the world makes me abundantly courageous because I'm assured that no one can stop me from this purpose. No one can stop us from God's will. It gives us a, a boldness, a boldness that only comes from humility. And then last, which is the best, it makes us Christ-like. Humility makes us like Christ in all of these ways. Do you notice that all of these things that you've heard so far are all attributes of Christ himself? No one was more God, Godward facing than Christ. No one was more secure in God's will and purposes. No one was more kind. And we know that best of all because he's been kind to us. And no one, no one was more courageous because no one else is Christ. Therefore, we can become like him, God's ultimate purpose in us. This humility is losing itself, losing ourselves in Christ. 
It's a long walk with Christ that looks to him as the, as the most wonderful thing on our path. We lose, we lose thought of ourselves because we lose ourselves in him. So I want to encourage you with that thought right there today that you would make that a pursuit. That you would make it your pursuit, that I would make it my pursuit to hide myself in Christ. To humble myself, humble yourself in Christ. Lose yourself in him. And that brings us to the third and final truth about prophets this morning for people who want to be ambassadors of Christ. And it is the reminder that because of this humility, we and we alone are able to rightly, in a godly way, deliver truth, even when it's hard. That's what Amos had the courage to do because of his humility, because of his, his trust in Yahweh, the God who had called him from the field and had used him in these incredible ways, all for his own glory. And that's why he says in verse 16, so now, now hear the word of the Lord. Notice how he gained such courage even in delivering this truth. That because of his humility, because of his security, because of God's care, because of God's call, because it wasn't all up to him to be a prophet or a son of a prophet, he is able to say then with boldness, so now, from just an old herdsman, just a fig grower, hear the word of Yahweh. He says, you are saying, you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you prophesy against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what Yahweh says. Do you hear that over and over again? You're getting a glimpse into the real key to what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. He never says, I say to you. He always says, the Lord says, because he knows who's, who he's representing. Therefore, this is what Yahweh says, and it is a devastating, a devastating truth. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. Furthermore, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Those who minister the truth of God in this world need humility because they're called to declare hard truth. Hard truth can only come ultimately from one place. It comes from God's authority, and that's why he is able to, to deliver it. He knows where the real power of what he's doing is, belongs. He, he knows the one who will care for him, even if that rejection turns into his death, and therefore he is willing even glad, though I don't believe glad in judgment. Like his God, he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he's glad to announce and serve his king because it's the authority of that king that carries those words forward. It's just like smart kids at home. They want the sibling to do something. They don't ever say, I'm telling you to do it. They say, dad said, mom said, The truth can be hard. Sometimes we are receive hard truth, don't we? 
Sometimes the word of God gives me hard truth about my life and you hard truth about your life. But as ambassadors of Christ, of those who know what it's like to receive hard truth, we're well prepared to deliver it. And that's what God sometimes calls us to do. But the good news is that he never calls us just to deliver the bad news. He always calls us to bring this good news now. Fast forward in time, past the cross, past the resurrection, into this moment. And we know that the gospel is paramount. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that further encourages our courage to share the bad news and to do it in love. As we come to a close this morning, I want to remind you of something that we've discussed before and we actually considered again as men uh, this weekend in our men's summit. And that is simply a three-part plan for how we can be faithful in this way. Uh, This weekend, yesterday morning, in fact, we, we talked about our own propensity, our own temptation to be first people of debate and only people of ministry later. That our first response in conflict or we hear something that we don't like or we get nervous about the world around us, we immediately go into debate mode. We start to debate all the facts. We want to set everybody straight. We want to tell everybody what they should be doing. But that is to completely miss the opportunity that God gives his ambassadors, and that is the mode of ministry. So the three-part plan for personal ministry that we considered yesterday, we consider again this morning so that we all can remember it and we all can begin practicing it. It's three words, enter, understand, bring. That's the path of ministry. If we want to be people who speak the truth in love, we want to represent our God and bring his word glorious and awesome as it is, we ought to do it this way. We ought to try to enter the world of other people. Rather than just talking at people, rather than just shooting, shooting out the announcement, we want to do what Jesus did. Jesus entered our world. He came close to us, didn't he? He moved in close. In fact, he was so close that they criticized him for it and eventually killed him for it because he was eating and drinking with sinners. He entered our world. He did that as someone who had a unique, godly, infinite ability to understand our need. That's second. Enter, understand. Understand our need. And now because he dwells in us by his spirit, we're able to do the same for other people. With the word of God, with a gracious outlook upon the world, we can think about with God's help, what is the need of the moment? How can I minister to this person? What does this person really need to hear from Christ? What does he say to this person in this situation or in this trouble or in this temptation or in this conflict or in this fear? And then we can bring, third, bring Christ and his answers to these people. I assure you there's very little of that going on in the world right now. You want to make a difference? You want to put attention on Christ? You want to shock people around you? Enter, understand, bring in your relationships. Enter, understand, bring in your conflicts. Enter, understand, bring on social media. Everywhere that you go, enter, understand, bring. And as we have the humility to do this with God working in us, 
He will bless those efforts. And we will see people coming to Christ because they will see him as glorious and all satisfying because he has spoken that reality through us, through his word. That's what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. That's why we want to gain these truths from those who've gone before us, like Amos, so that we can lose ourselves in him. Of course, this begins by coming to Christ first and foremost to become one of his followers. It could be that you're here, that you hear this later online, and you know that you're not a follower of Jesus. I encourage you to wait no longer, to throw yourself at his mercy, to come and follow him. Repent of your sin, as the Bible says, and place your trust in him and what he has done for sinners like us. Ask God to give you everything that you need so that you can believe in him and know him and walk with him. And then, and then we can continue walking together in these incredible ways with security, with kindness, facing our God, with courage, and being like Christ, who satisfies us. He's the one who makes us happy. Let me invite you to stand with me this morning as I pray for us once again, and then we will sing again. If you need to come to Christ today or you want to talk with someone about that, you could always go to the back at the end of the service, and some will be back there to meet you and to spend some time with you or to find a time during the week. But now we pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice this morning because you are the God of welcome. You have welcomed us as sinners into your kingdom under the blood of your Son. You have given your very Son to live, die, and rise again for us. Your kindness has known no bounds toward us. Your favor has been entirely unmerited, and for that we rejoice. We pray this morning that you would make us ambassadors of yours. We want to be people who speak your truth, even the hard truth, with love, with kindness, with hope, with grace, with mercy, because that's the way that you have spoken to us. Make us not afraid. Make us courageous before you, we pray. We pray that you would take the words of your word and bury them in our hearts, that they would bear the fruit like seeds of humility, that we would lose ourselves in you, and that we would find all of our gladness in making you famous, making you known, showing off your significance this morning and every day, even as we sing now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.